Well, I remember back in November uh, 2006, I think it was, a while back, it was a cold November morning, and we were in an East Texas town in a cemetery, standing in front of an open grave, and the minister who was there uh, began to speak. And there was a you know crowd of people gathered around this open grave of a family member of ours. And the minister said, We have gathered here today to remember the life of Wayne Stiles. And that just sent a chill up my spine. Of course, my grandfather had died, and his name was Wayne Stiles, and so there was no big surprise. But when I heard that in that context... And I'd never heard that before. It was almost like, you know, I needed to check my watch and make sure that the second hand was still moving. It was spooky. It, it was a different experience. So just imagine next time you're at a funeral, the person that stands up and says, we're here to remember. And then they say your name and you're sitting in the audience. It really is, uh, was a surreal experience. My grandfather and I had the same name and I always loved that. And I really felt honored when the family asked if I would pray at his graveside service, the minister uh, didn't um, didn't share the gospel, and so used uh, just anyway. I won't get into everything that was wrong about everything he said, but uh, that was like number one. And so when they asked me to pray, uh, I just dropped in a sermon in my prayer. You know, sometimes teachers will do that if they feel like they didn't get enough said in their sermon. They'll go ahead and finish the sermon when they pray. And uh, so that's what we did. <laughs> that minister didn't finish his sermon, so I finished it for him and included the, the gospel and just the fact that my grandfather had placed his faith in Christ, which was really the only reason that any of us have hope when we are facing that kind of a situation. Death and um, that context of loved ones and of uh, just facing the reality of our mortality is um, it's hard. And I think most of us have lived long enough now to where, whether it's our parents for sure or grandparents for sure, who have uh, gone ahead to the Lord. Uh, both my parents uh, are with the Lord, my, my biological parents. And it's, it's sort of surreal to think that, you know, you are the, uh, the last one in the generation and I'm the last male styles and so when I die, my whole branch goes to glory. But I think about the tombstones in cemeteries sometimes, and it's amazing when you look at a tombstone, it's got to be the most concise summary of a person's life that exists. Because you have the day that they're born, the day that, they're di- that they died, and in the middle, you have a dash. And that dash uh, sums up their entire life, the whole life in a dash. I remember reading somewhere where Woody Allen said, uh, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I like that because it gives us a perspective of uh, the world, the world's perspective on facing death and the, uh, the perspective that we have that is from the perspective of believers. But uh, regardless, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, Funerals or death or cemeteries, however you want to couch it, they allow us to do something that most situations in life don't allow us to do, and that is they allow us to see the truth. 
That is that uh, one day it's going to be us. One day it's going to be us that they say our name about. And it's, it happens with amazing frequency. I read this statistic that said every second two people die. Every second. So what, what we've been going, you know, how many minutes now? 45 minutes here in our class? 45 times 60 times 2? That's a lot of people just in the course of our class time now who have come face to face with their maker. And one day, that's going to be us. So what's the biblical response uh, to death? And not just that, I think we could all pretty well say how we as believers should respond to death, certainly to prepare for it, to expect it, to long for it. But there's also some other things that we don't talk about a whole lot, and that is, what do we do with the fact that this life that we've lived, and uh, those of us that are getting on the backside of life, we sort of think, you know what, it's not really what I thought it would be. It's uh, actually a bit of a disappointment. What do we do with that? What do we do with the, the reality of unfulfilled dreams and a life that we've lived that seems to be far short of the life that we expected that God would give us? Well, let's look once again at the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 23. So open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis 23, and let's look at what Abraham did, because he is a great model for this. I, uh, I read that in Indiana there is a cemetery there. It has a, uh, it's an old cemetery with an epitaph on one of the tombstones. And the epitaph that's written there says, uh, Pause, stranger, when you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Well, that's what was chiseled in. And then one of the strangers who who visited, I guess, decided that wasn't enough. And so they scratched on the tombstone uh, a reply to this. And the reply was, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> oh, I thought that's funny. But Genesis, we've been in the life of Abraham and... I don't know whether you realize it or not, but we've been with Abraham 62 years now of his life. From Genesis 12 here to Genesis 23 represents about 62 years. And so 62 years as we uh, 62 years ago in our study, Abraham received the promise, the call of God and the promises of God to go to a land that he'd never been to before, the promised land, we call it, because it was a land promised to Abraham. And God promised Abraham three things. And I hope by now you can name what those three things are. But God promised Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. The land, obviously, is the land of Canaan or the land of Israel as we know it today. Descendants represent the Jewish nation. And um, then blessing represents the uh, the fact that the Messiah would ultimately come through Abraham and through Abraham's line, through Jesus, the, um, the blessing of God would 
would go, he says, the Lord says to all nations, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And Matthew uh, chapter 1, I think around verse 1, verse 1 and 2, Matthew makes that connection as he refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham. So our Messiah, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, is the ultimate fulfillment of the, the blessing to Abraham, and therefore, he is also going to make possible the parts of that prom- those promises to Abraham that have yet to be fulfilled. Well, Abraham tried, as we've seen through the series, God has worked through Abraham's life, and Abraham tried to get the promises fulfilled faster than they were happening. Uh, Abraham and Sarah both were barren, without children, and the Lord, through a number of circumstances, brought about uh, uh, growth and development in their spiritual lives as a, as a result of having to wait for their beloved son, Isaac. And we saw that finally Isaac was born of a miracle because neither of them could, uh, in their old age, have a child. As a result of that, uh, God came to Abraham, as we saw last time in Genesis 22, and said, now you've got, it. you've got Isaac, take your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on, uh, in the area of Mount Moriah, which we saw is the area of Jerusalem. And of course, the Lord stepped in once he saw that Abraham was willing to do this amazing sacrificial act. He stopped him, didn't allow Isaac to be killed, and instead a substitute died in the place of his son, which as we discussed, it's just a whole beautiful picture that the Scripture connects once again to Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. Well, now Genesis 23, we come face to face with a significant death in the life of Abraham, and that is the the death of his wife, Sarah. So, let's look right here in verse 1 and work our way down through this very practical and hopeful chapter. Verse 1 says, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriat Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, The author, Harold Kushner, He's the author that wrote that book with that really bad title that says, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, which, anyway. But anyway, Harold Kushner, I th- and I think it's in that book that he's, he relates a story that says he got a phone call one time from a young uh, boy in his neighborhood, or about a young boy in his neighborhood that had been hit by a car and killed. And he didn't know the boy, but he went to the funeral, and the family's minister told the family, this is not a time for sadness, uh, or tears, because Michael's been taken out of the world, you know, out of this world of sin and pain, and now he is in heaven, and they can rejoice. And Kushner said he felt so bad for the parents because not only had their child suddenly been taken from them, but they were told to rejoice. And it seemed so uh, out of place, you know, to be spiritual and to be right with God, we can't be sad during a time of uh, of death. And that is just it's just so unbiblical because we see here in the life of Abraham, Abraham it says he mourned uh Sarah. He 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 mourned for her and he wept for her verse 2. In the life of even someone of great faith, 
it is completely natural and normal to, uh, to weep because death isn't normal. We weren't designed to have to deal with death. We were designed in the Adam and Eve fashion uh, to live without death. And so death is really a rude intrusion into God's plan for mankind. It came as a result of sin 20 chapters uh, earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death, and it's physical death, which is the soul being separate from the body, and also spiritual death, that is the soul separate from God. And because mankind experiences this, um, this separation, uh, there is pain, and it is perfectly natural. Even our Lord Jesus Christ at the death of Lazarus, when he saw the pain of Mary and Martha, even Jesus wept. So we can't say it's wrong to do that, and it's very right to do that, to weep with those who weep, and to uh, even ourselves, to allow ourselves to grieve the significant loss of significant people in our lives. So Abraham mourns, but that's not all he does, and it's not all we must do. We don't just mourn and move on, but there's something else that we need to include in our lives when we uh, come face to face with death. Look at verse 3 as this continues. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, that's the locals there in Hebron, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Harris, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham says he's a sojourner. And this reminds us Abraham has been promised the land, but he doesn't own any of it. He's lived 62 years in Canaan as a nomad in tents. And the land that God promised to him, he doesn't own any of it. <laughs> that's just that's just amazing to me. You know, when we think of traveling somewhere or buying a house or whatever, I mean, why would you rent, you know, for 62 years when you're when you know you're going to be living in the land? Well, because this was God's plan. So, uh Abraham decides that rather than take Sarah back to where they were from, Ur, and bury her there, typically you'd be buried in your hometown, wherever that was. Abraham says, no, we've got a new place. We've got a new place. In fact, we're going to demonstrate faith in God's promise by being buried right here in Hebron. But I don't own a place to bury my dead, and so this is what this transaction is all about. Now, let's finish out the chapter. Let's read the rest of these verses, because it's really all sort of makes one point. So, starting in verse 7, let's uh, read the rest of this chapter together, and then we'll talk about some application and relevancy for our lives. Verse 7, So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in the presence for a burial site." Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of the city, saying, 
No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the uh, field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. You know, I'm always amazed when we read Scripture that sometimes the text tends to give an inordinate amount of space to something that could be said in a sentence. And here's a great example. I mean, we could say, Abraham haggled for the price and bought the field. But we don't. We get 13 verses of them going back and forth on all this. And it's sort of interesting when you think about the, uh, uh, the haggling that goes on when you try to buy something in Israel. It's pretty much the same way. And you end up still paying too much. So Abraham paid 400 shekels for this field, which seems like a whole lot back in that day. But why is it significant? Why have all this text devoted to this? It's significant because... It's the only real estate that Abraham ever purchased, the only land that he ever purchased or that he ever owned in the promised land was a grave. It was a grave, and it wasn't just a place to be buried. It was a place to be resurrected. I want to show you a uh, few pictures here of the place that the Bible is speaking of. So here's Israel once again, and see my arrow. Uh, Hebron, or Mamre, is the center area right here. So let's see if I can get in a little bigger. You can, yes. Okay, well, oh, you know, it helps if I share the screen, then you can see it. (laughs) All right, good. All right, so there's, let me back out again. There's the context. There's Israel. And if we scoot in a little bit there, you can see that here's Hebron. So basically, right immediately west of the Dead Sea is where this area was that Abraham bought the land. When you go there today, you'll see this big edifice over the top. It's a a building that uh, covers the, the cave of Machpelah. And it's really in two sections. There is, um, because Abraham is the father or forefather of, he was the father of Abraham, he's the father of Isaac as well as Ishmael, who are the forefathers of the Jews and the Arabs. Uh, Both the Jewish 
Judaism and predominantly the Muslims look at this site as sacred. And of course, we Christians do as well, because Abraham is a uh, direct influence uh, through our faith as well. So three religions consider this site very sacred and significant. Uh, We would say that it's a significant site because it is the place where Sarah is buried, and of course, as the story goes on, not just Sarah, but this becomes the burial place for all the patriarchs. And it dates, this structure dates probably to just before the time of Jesus, because if we look, you can see my sweetheart here touching the wall, you can notice the, the, the framing or the, the embossing that's around the edge of these stones is exactly the same that's around the stones on the Temple Mount. And, of course, we know Herod the Great built the, uh, the uh, retaining wall around the Temple Mount. So, it's very likely and almost certain that Herod the Great had this structure built as well. So, it dates to the time, basically, of the first century. When you go inside the Jewish side, there is this large open area here for prayer. But also, there are a number of small little areas, and if you were to look inside this door right here, I don't know if you read Hebrew, but this says Sarah, if you can look inside the door right here, you would see what's called a cenotaph, C-E-N-A, I think, or C-E-N-O-T-A-P-H, cenotaph. A cenotaph is this thing, it's just a big, it looks sort of like a casket that's covered, but a cenotaph is a marker that honors someone who's buried somewhere, somewhere else. Now, the patriarchs are buried in the cave that's under this building, but because the, we can't get down there anymore, they have these cenotaphs in various places around the area. And this is Sarah's. So, since we're talking about Sarah today, I thought I'd show you her cenotaph. There's also a cenotaph for Abraham, of course, because he was ultimately buried here as well as uh, Jacob and Leah and Isaac and Rebekah. So they are all buried there, and they each have cenotaphs. If you go over on the Muslim side, which most Christian tourists don't get to do, but if um, you go over there, I've been there one time, and this, uh, this structure here covers this little hole, which you can't see very well, but in the next picture you can see This hole has a padlock on it, so you can't throw stuff down in here. But if you were to look through this grate, you would see a cave below, and they have a a light there that I think is probably gas-generated, but stays lit all the time. And you can sort of see the distance down in there. But that's the cave of Machpelah down in this area that we can't get to and we can't even take a picture of. But I show this to you to uh, once again just show you we, we have a faith that is rooted in reality. It's not just words on a page. It is places as well. And you can uh, go to Israel today or when you can go back to Israel today and go to Hebron and you can see the very place of which we are reading here in Genesis 23. So, how does this relate to us? I mean, this talks about Abraham buying this this area, but uh, what difference does that make in our lives here in, uh, in our world? Well, let's look together at Hebrews 11 and look at just a couple of verses, a paragraph here that gives us some insight 
into application. Hebrews chapter 11. So Abraham lived 62 years in the promised land before he owned any of it. And the only part that he owned was a burial plot. So the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 reminds us of something. Hebrews 11:13 and following says this. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Let me just pause there for a second and look at those words, look at those words. All these, if you look at the passage just before this, it's referring to Abraham and Sarah and others, but primarily Abraham and Sarah, right before these verses. They died in faith without receiving the promises. In other words, God made promises to them that they didn't get in this life. They died. Continuing, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, there's where the faith plays in, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, for which he also received him back as a type. Now, we read this last couple of verses last time because it was relevant in our, in our study of Genesis 22, which talked about Abraham uh, potentially sacrificing Isaac. But it's relevant to mention again, especially with the verses that come before it, because it gives us the basis of their faith. They had faith because they knew that death was not the end of God's promises. Either God reneged on his promise to Abraham, or the promise proves and even demands a resurrection. And, the, and we're told right here in Hebrews that um, Abraham fully expected that if God told him to sacrifice the promise, then God must be going to resurrect the promise because the promise, Isaac, is the one through whom all this is going to happen. Abraham anticipated and expected a resurrection. And that is why also Abraham purchased this land in Hebron, because he expected a resurrection, that God would bring about the, the fulfillment of promises in his time. And this is 2000 BC. And of course, right now we're living in 2020. So more than 4,000 years ago, this, uh, this conversation and the, these actions took place and Abraham had faith. And I love it also that even in, in the time of Jesus, when Jesus was asked a, a question about another context, it was actually a question about a context of resurrection, Jesus quoted, or, or Jesus quoted from the, uh, the Pentateuch, or the, the books of Moses, and I think it was Exodus, where he quotes the Lord saying, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. In other words, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still very much alive in, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual sense and alive and well, and resurrection is going to happen. So even Christ points to this and shows it to be a reality. Well, there's a couple of principles, uh, very specific principles that we can derive from this text today. And here's the first one, and it's such a good one. Death is reconciled with God's promises because his promises extend beyond the grave. Death is reconciled to God's promises because God's promises extend beyond the grave. You see, when we are looking for consolation, we weep, but like Jesus before Lazarus's tomb, Jesus knew very well that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and still Jesus wept. We're the same. And when we experience death, we weep because there's the pain of the separation, but there's also a great consolation because we expect resurrection. It was true with Jesus and Lazarus. It was true with Abraham and Sarah. And it's true of us as well. Uh, When Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, he said, uh, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have hope. And then he goes on to talk about the rapture, or which will be our resurrection. So death is reconciled with God's promises because his promises extend beyond the grave. And here's the second principle that uh, basically summarizes the first one, but it says it much more succinctly. God, uh, God's promises require our resurrection. God's promises require our resurrection. And that's great because we're all going to die with unfulfilled dreams, um, with God's promises in some sense unfulfilled. And that is because this life is not all of life. This life is only the beginning of life, of true life. But death makes it look like this is all there is. I don't know if you've ever looked very closely at a a person who has died, but it's clear there's no life there. Uh, This is not just somebody, you know, asleep. There's nothing there. It is a shell And death makes it look like this is the end. But we know in reality that it's not the end. The Apostle Paul said that uh, if this life is all there is, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Because we're banking on the next life and and the resurrection. We have to keep eternity in view. A a biblical mindset is a mindset that looks not only at the corpse, but also looks beyond the facts before us to the future. This is how we live by faith. Faith focuses on all the facts, not just the facts we see, but on the facts we don't see. Faith takes the long view and makes decisions based on the long view. And I don't know if you've discovered, but heaven seems far more real the more people we know who have gone there before us. Have you noticed that? When we have, uh, when we have someone that we know who is in glory and multiple people, it seems so much more real than it was when we were kids. 
and everyone that we knew was still alive. But when so many of the people we love have gone before us, it makes heaven seem like so much more of a real place. I like the way Timothy Keller put it. He writes, Resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back, he says. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of life. But we get it back in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. I like that. It reminds me of... uh, of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Uh, there's, a, there's a section there in Genesis chapter 3 where the Lord drives them out of Eden and takes them east of Eden. And then he makes the statement, the Lord makes the statement that uh, he, did that, he did this so that lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And I think in most texts, there's just kind of a dash there. It's like, that's unthinkable. That, that I would allow Adam and Eve to, to live forever in a fallen state. Better that I take them out of, this, out of the place where they can live forever, and they die, and they be resurrected to live, uh, to live forever in a better state. It's the same idea. So, in a sense, I think a lot of us bury dreams when we bury people. And if that's your case, if you have buried a dream, if, if, if dreams have died when someone that you know has died, remember that this life, as real as it is, it represents just a slice of reality. It's just, just a fraction of our total existence. Heaven is a lot longer than the dash on our tombstones. And I like to think of it this way, that... that uh, this life that we're living now, this 100-year life, this 90-year life, however long we live, it is only the foyer to forever. It's just the entrance to forever. God made us for eternity. Um, you're in Hebrews 11. Flip back to chapter 9, and look at that familiar verse 27. Hebrews 9, verse 27. And I like the way the New International Version translates it. It says, man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. And that's helpful to remember. Uh, Because, you know, if we're honest, the question we need to answer today is, are we prepared to meet God as we are today? Not as we hope to be, not as we plan to be, not as we um, want to be over the next few months or years as we make our lives better and more presentable for to be in front of God. No, the honest person gets ready today because we aren't promised a tomorrow that we're destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So, uh, I know many of you, I don't know all of you, but the Lord knows each one of you, and you know yourself uh, whether you are prepared to stand before God today. And the good news is you can be. You can know for certain that you will go to heaven when you die, not because of anything, the good life that you've lived, but because in spite of the sin that you've done that separates you from God, 
you know that the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in your place. Just like that ram died in the place of Isaac, Jesus died in your place and in my place, took all our sins upon himself and died as our sacrifice, and then was resurrected to show that that sacrifice was fully accepted by the Father. And the Bible gives us the great news that all we have to do is believe that truth. Just believe it. And it's true. It's true of you. That, uh, that forgiveness is applied to your account. And for those of us that that's old news, it's still good news, isn't it? It's still a wonderful reminder that uh, heaven is there by the grace of God, not by the good lives we live. And one day also, it's a good reminder that we're going to gaze full into His face. We're going to be able to look full into the face of the holiness of God without fear of punishment, because Jesus took that penalty away when He died. Uh, Not in parables, not in metaphors, uh, not in the the head-scratching confusion of Scripture that we have sometimes, we're going to see him face to face with our own eyes. Imagine that, looking into the face of God. And it's more certain than your next breath. Well, the fulfillment of life that we long for is ultimately found in Christ. And you may wait your whole life. You may be waiting for something, for God to do something in this life that is never going to happen. It may, but it may not. But even if it doesn't, all of the fulfillment that we long for ultimately, is found in resurrection. Abraham knew that. Abraham knew that, and he, buying that grave to put Sarah in, was an act of faith that one day, all of the land, not just this little bit, all of the land, God's going to give to me, and I'll be resurrected to inherit it. I love the, uh, the words of the missionary Adoram Judson when he writes, When Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. (laughs) Remember when you were a kid and school was out for the summer? How you would just run? I like that picture. When Christ calls us home, we will go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Well, let's pray together. And as we do, I want to just read a couple of verses from Philippians to start our prayer. So bow with me and I'll read from Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Father, it's true that we do eagerly await our Savior. And our Lord Jesus Christ promised that He will not leave us as orphans, that He's gone to prepare a place for us, and that one day He will come again and bring us to where He is, that we may be with Him forever. And this hope uh, that, uh, that we call the rapture, that is simply described as resurrection, or our being caught up together with the Lord, is the hope that we we cling to. And we know that it could happen today, 
And if not, and we die, we know that we will be raised from our tomb, joined again with our soul, and live forever in the presence of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the amazing life of Abraham as he continues to display faith even in death, even as he stares uh, death in the face. He does it with faith, and he believes that there is resurrection to come, and the promises that you've given him, the promises that you've given us, require resurrection. So give us the comfort when we um, are weeping, and give us a hope that goes beyond the, the simplicity of this life to the life that's before us in resurrection. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.